Welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. My name is Michael LeBlanc, and I am your host. This podcast is produced in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. Meet Albert Chow, the co-founder and CEO of Silk and Snow, a digitally native retailer of thoughtfully made sleep essentials, ranked as one of Canada's top growing companies by the Globe and Mail and Canadian Business, and joining Endian Casper as a recent addition to Sleep Country's fantastic roster of brands, a great story of inspiration and perspiration, a true Canadian e-commerce, and soon to be physical, retail success story. Let's listen in now. Albert, welcome to the Voice Retail Podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? Good, good, Michael. Um, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Well, thanks for joining me on the mic. Now, where am I finding you this afternoon? So today is a Friday and it's uh, uh, very warm in Toronto. <laughs> it's all relative, though. I just got back from Orlando and it's not warm here, Albert. Let me tell you, it's, <laughs> oh, it's wow. warm there. It's, so and it's warm. <laughs> and I have friends in Texas who, uh, you know, they just passed like some crazy number of days above 100 so it's all relative. Let's let's uh, let's get past the weather report here. <laughs> let's get let's talk let's talk about you. Tell me who you are, a little bit about your background and and what you do for a living. Yeah, so I am the CEO and one of the co-founders of Silk and Snow, which is a leading digitally native retailer of thoughtfully made sleep essentials. So, uh, a little bit about my background. I started in technology. One of my first careers was as a uh, uh, consultant for one of the largest technology and management consulting firms called Accenture. And for me, I always had a, a passion for retail and I spent a larger part of the last two decades consulting for uh, some of the largest Canadian retailers uh, on technology-driven change, including Canadian Tire and Loblaws. So about six years ago, I met up with my co-founder, Kenneth, who is a longtime school friend of mine. And he also spent a lot of time in Canadian retail. And at the time, what we were seeing was a lot of sameness with the larger retailers. Uh, there was a move towards a lot of white labeling, mass production, fast fashion style of merchandising. And this is kind of what motivated Kenneth and I to found Silk and Snow in 2017. We were both mm -hmm. in the Toronto area, as I mentioned earlier, and we really discovered uh, the mattress industry almost accidentally as we found that the entire supply chain for the mattress industry was kind of right here in our backyards. So we, we found everything from uh, the, the manufacturers for pocket coils to textiles to uh, people who make the comfort foams and cut and sew. So there was really a small uh, ecosystem of mattress manufacturers that was located within a five uh, five kilometer radius within where we were located so for us we really decided to take this ecosystem of manufacturers to make a 100 percent locally sourced and made mattress and by working with heritage manufacturers and a local supply chain what we felt was that we would create a higher quality product and we would be able to stay closer to them and and ensure that there was a lot more thoughtfulness and uh, sus uh, sustainability in their processes. And uh, over the years, we've really taken this model in partnering with mm -hmm. other heritage manufacturers to um, expand our product line in the sleep space. So uh, in the last four years, we've uh, been consistently ranked as one of the fastest growing companies in Canada. And at the beginning of the year in 2023, uh, Silk and Snow was acquired by Sleep Country. So since then, we've joined the Sleep Country business as part of their senior leadership team. Great, bu great business, right? I mean, they've just been doing so well. You're not, I don't think you're the only 
bright entrepreneurs that they've uh, that they've come into contact with and have joined the family. Let's let's take a couple of clicks back. So I think the origin is as well. I got a bunch of questions. Um, <laughs> I think the origin, some of the origin is. Did I read that you started with Kickstarter? Like, how did you? I want to delve into that. Like, so a couple of you obviously skilled in, um, as you said, uh, more in technology with retail. So how did you come across? First of all, uh, the idea that the sleepwear category specifically was uh, tired. Can we say that in the sleepwear category? I guess that's a bit of a bit fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but also, but but also that that you create a product and then and then talk about how you raise the money for it. Yeah. So um, I, I think the Kickstarter uh, campaign that we ran was more out of necessity because what we were finding was that even as we approached these small batch manufacturers you, you still had to run a decent size po in order to get your first order and sure uh, for us we uh we, we didn't know what this could be um we know that uh, we could manufacture a good product um mm-hmm. we're very much in touch with the supply chain and and um we uh thought that uh, we had a good product hands but we didn't know what the reception from the customers would be so uh, mm-hmm. we really used kickstarter as a test like a lot of other entrepreneurs did um it's probably there that we really discovered how to become marketers rather than people that knew how to build a website and and operate a retail right. business and um we really learned from that what the community wanted um how how we could get the right messaging across to to um really explain the product that we were uh, we were producing and and uh, really got our, our first uh, little start from from that campaign. So let's talk about the the scope and scale. Now uh, you're part of Sleep Country now, but w- what did you get to? Like you talked about uh, some core product and product extensions. Do you sell within Canada? Do you sell uh, coast to coast? Do you sell uh, beyond Canada? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so we um, currently market within Canada and the U.S., and we do a fairly good business on both sides. Um, hmm. Over the years, like when we started, we were a mattress in a box company, and uh, we were really in a very crowded space. Like we joined the mm-hmm. uh, uh, the 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 mattress industry uh, in 2017, a few years after a lot of the larger brands started. So. We, we discovered we weren't doing, uh, that well. And that was probably a blessing in disguise. Um, we, we realized that it was a very crowded space and there was a lot of sameness. And one of the things that happened there was that it really forced us to think of how we would differentiate ourselves as a business. So over the years, we've really been able to apply that heritage manufacturing and small batch principle to expanding our assortment across a number of different products. So. Uh, right now, we we do an equal amount of business in selling mattresses to bedding to furniture. Yeah, I see that as bed frames. Tell me about who your customer is. Who's uh, who's shopping and who's buying? What do, what do they look like? And uh, I, what are they looking for? And um, are they looking for something different? And how did you find them? But mostly, tell me about your customers. I would say that uh, for our customers, especially in our industry, um, and this is a term that gets used a lot, um, a typical person that walks into a mattress store looking for a mattress, we we consider a grudge purchase. So the typical <laughs> customers that don't want to be there, uh, they hate doing it, but they have to do it because they're trying to solve for a particular problem. Um, so an example would be their mattress reached the end of life or they're having back pain. So it's it's very mm. problem-oriented. They probably reached the end of life five years ago. Now they're just 
grud- yeah, begrudgingly yeah. acknowledging <laughs> it, right? And that was the case for it, buddy. <laughs> it, it was the case for my wife and I. Were like, "How old is this mattress again?" Because it really doesn't feel good. Uh, next year. <laughs> yeah, you sound like a typical customer. They they tend to try to stretch it out a bit. Um, yeah. But yeah, I I think for us when for us we we felt that um, you know that was a very unpleasant experience and. Um, we wanted to kind of focus on a different type of shopping experience. So for Silk and Snow, um, we focus on more of an inspired purchasing experience where the customer um, really focuses on on the aesthetic and the very thoughtful curation of, of our products. And, and we want to be aspirational and uh, have the consumer focus more on the quality and the beauty of the aesthetic of our products rather than the fixing a particular pain point. Um, so yeah. I... I don't know if it comes across on the site, but one of the, one of the subtleties is that um, a lot of the the products are a little bit more cohesive. Um, we don't just randomly select colors uh, that are on trend or or that sell as individual products. We really want to focus on selling the entire space and curating a typical look so that the mm. customer can come back and purchase the whole space rather than a particular product. Yeah, I'm I'm on your site now. It's great. It's quite well done. Not surprising, uh, you. given your background, but also the the merchandising is quite uh, it's quite nice. Uh, it's quite evocative in terms of you know merchandising around, as you said, that one look uh, for the uh, for the room. So that's that's super interesting. And 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 uh, how do you build business in the states? You're, that's a competitive market. So tell talk about that a little bit. And then I want to get to the what you're planning for the future. But let's just hang on that for a bit. How do you? You know, a lot of people go to the States and it's a little bit of a pure play killing ground if you're not careful. So talk about your success there. It is, it is. And and I think a lot of D2Cs struggle with that because um, the cost of acquisition is so high. The the logistics of getting set mm-hmm. up there and the volumes you require are a lot higher. Um, so for us, we've, we've been able to inch <laughs> into the U.S. over mm. the years um, very gradually. And I think what's kind of protected us is that we've been able to keep our cost of acquisition low. Um, one mm-hmm. of the, the problems with the mattress industry is that it's very expensive to acquire a customer. And um, a bigger problem is they actually, it's, it's very difficult to get a customer to come back. Um, like if your product is good, uh, they're likely not coming back for another seven to 10 years to replace that mattress. And right. if you're lucky, maybe they have a second bedroom and they need that, but the repeat purchases are few and far between. And mm. so for us, um, in the early days of us starting the business, we really made this conscious decision to focus on growing our, our brand through assortment and selling the entire space. Um, mm. And we, we, we do want to sell the mattress, but we also want to give you a reason to keep coming back. So we do really focus mm. on um, the aesthetic aspect and the curation aspect of our product line to ensure that, um, you know, once you have a, a silk and snow product or a silk and snow experience, there's a reason to keep coming back. And um, that I, I believe that that repeatability of the customer and, mm-hmm. and giving a reason for the customer to come back has really kept our cost of acquisition low. So yes, we do spend a lot in acquiring customers, mm-hmm. but we do have them come back uh, and, and it's only helped us over the years. So you're a digitally native vertical brand, I guess we could call it, or a digitally native um retailer talk about your thoughts around brick and mortar i think i saw that you might be actually getting into physical brick and mortar of course your partners or uh, sleep country is uh, lots of brick and mortar stores but what's your philosophy and, and how do you see brick and mortar fitting into your business model 
Yeah, so we're we're very we've been very fortunate because we are digitally native. It's actually protected us a bit during the pandemic and allowed us to grow organically as a brand with a digital focus. However, what typically gets lost in a digital brand is you do have your products a bit commoditized with the sea of sameness that you compete with with other other brands. And as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, we we really play in a very crowded category. Um, I believe that uh, bricks and mortars is is a important part of our growth strategy. Um, a lot of our products are inspired purchases, and um, uh, they are still very tactile in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though um, e- uh, in our space uh, there's a lot of e-commerce companies, I believe that. 85% of the purchases still happens in bricks and mortar. And I just believe that on the e-commerce side, it's just part of the journey. What we're finding is that a lot of customers are discovering your brand online, but if they had a, if they could choose, they would rather purchase and finish the, the purchasing journey at a physical location. So for us, um, I think it is an important part of our growth strategy and it is something that uh, we are focused on, on growing as a channel. I mean, it's interesting listening to you describe how you're thinking about bricks and mortar because some would approach it as in it's going to help me have a different cost of customer acquisition, right? So it's hard to get a lot of leverage out of the platforms anymore, right? It's hard to do it better than anyone else. So maybe right. if I find the right real estate in the right mall and uh, maybe that'll lower my cost of customer acquisition because uh, the mall basically has to pick up some of the heavy lifting to do that or maybe you're on a main street or some might sh- say it's more a showroom. Uh, it's more a media play to get people to buy online. How do you how do you look at those two things? Is it is it that is it that and yes, or is it? Listen, I want people to come in here, be inspired, and walk out with a translation. Like, is your key metric of a of a store or, or stores, you know, sales per square foot, or do you have some other kind of metrics in mind that that tie more organically or holistically to customer acquisition and lifetime value? I, I think it's a little bit of both. Like if mm. I, if I kind of break up the two points, um, I, I, what we've been tracking is that people that do interact with our brand at a physical level, they do convert a little bit better or mm-hmm. actually I shouldn't say a little bit better. They convert a lot better. A lot better. And, yeah, right. So it, a physical space to us is a, mm. a conversion tool. It, mm-hmm. um, it mm-hmm. definitely, uh, resonates with the customer more and it's, it's a much easier purchasing journey. And, mm-hmm. and so that's what we've seen in our data. Um, the other thing is that, uh, and I know, uh, Michael, you're from the Toronto area, so you mm-hmm. must have come across like a, a, a mattress out of home ad from one of the other brands and, um, they're, <laughs> one or a hundred. Sure. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and I, I think that's a very expensive game to yeah, uh, use yeah. traditional media, but well, at, it's hard at to certain- win at, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's like a utility almost. I mean, it's just very hard to win. Uh, yeah, you're right. I, I think it's a it's a tool that you can grow very quickly and gain mm-hmm. awareness very quickly, but mm-hmm. um, it, it is very difficult to, and and hard to measure to get a return on that. But I think on a physical store level, I, I mean, we're we're paying um, for out of home ads uh, the, the same amount that you would pay for some of these rents that we're considering mm-hmm. at a physical level. So mm-hmm. we do consider it as also an awareness play and that mm-hmm. um, it does drive awareness for the brand. But on top of that, uh, we have the added benefit of a conversion play as well. So how many, how many locations would you foresee in the next 24 months in, in Canada, for example? Are you thinking a handful or major acquisition or are you still kind of figuring out 
how many, what kind of physical presence is the right fit for you guys? Um, if I, if I gave my number, I might scare my sleep country <laughs> colleagues, but, uh, I, I think for now, the way we're looking at it is that, uh, we, we are focused on opening up our first store within the next three months, but, that's great. uh, if, Gotta start if somewhere, we, right? Gotta start somewhere. That's right. That's right. And we really are looking at it to, to kind of test the model of, of what mm-hmm. will work and what won't. But, uh, if and you, and you know, tr- I mean, by this, by the work you've done in your, past career you know that running stores is a very different thing than running websites like oh yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's a much longer game it's uh, uh there's a much more of an operational aspect to it that yeah. needs to yeah. be scaled out but sure. uh, uh I, I think it will take time but uh ultimately like if we're just doing it for the one store it's not going to be a success uh the the idea is that we do have a scalable model here and that we figure it out um what's the perfect model to work with Fantastic. Well, uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about product innovation, what innovation looks like, product development. Uh, you know, great retailers are always having an eye on, on the future. How do you guys approach it? You know, what's your, your trade craft of, of creating the next popular product? Do you have customer feedback, intuition, great merchants, the alchemy of all those things? Talk about how you approach innovation and product growth and merchandising. Yeah, so I, I think we approach it in two ways. We never kind of go f- too far off from what's core to our business. So we, we every year we have a product roadmap that we continue to expand our, our product into adjacent categories. So uh, we wouldn't be uh, selling mattresses today and then tomorrow selling suitcases, but we do try right, to inch right. forward and, and kind of give a reason for our customers to come back. I, I think for um, uh, our kind of what's core to our products is just the thoughtfulness that goes into each of the designs and especially the aesthetic and ensuring that it's cohesive so that if they buy a silk and snow product that when they come back and purchase another one that um, uh, the aesthetic of of the products do work together and i think more importantly uh, one of the differentiators for us is just our sourcing Um, we tend to favor partnering with heritage manufacturers who have a history of making quality products and have a very ethical and sustainable manufacturing process. Uh, so, for example, our entire bedding line is actually manufactured in Portugal, and we don't mm. use the same uh, mass production manufacturers that a lot of our our competitors use. It also allows us to stay closer to our supply chain and have better control of the quality and the end product. Sure. Uh, well, sometimes it does give us problems in that um, these aren't aren't manufacturers that can easily scale as well. So we've right. had our share of supply chain issues with with this type of model. Yeah, yeah, great, great, um, co- great country for textiles, right? Um, That's right. Think, think of <laughs> Portugal. Now I'm I'm looking at your site uh, just since we're talking product. I see flax linen bed sheets. Tell me about. I've never heard of flax before. It's 100 percent European flax. So what's the you just you know, like, you know get excited about the product. What's the what's the, uh, the features and benefits of putting flax into linen bed sheets? What's uh, what do you get out of that, and why did you yeah make that choice? I think uh, when it gets to the nuances of bedding, uh, a lot of it is texture based. Um, flax linen is a a bit of a different type of material that um, is a little bit more airy and mm. uh, uh, textured. And and it also gives you this lived-in look that mm-hmm. uh, a lot of our customers really love and it's very mm. on trend. Um, but on top of that, I, I think it's a very natural fiber and uh, 
grows without a lot of usage of water. And that's also Ooh. kind of the eco-consciousness that, that yeah. goes into uh, a lot of our product development is that it is a little bit more thoughtful and sustainable and, and something that, that is very much on brand for a lot of our product line. And, and are you hearing that from the customer that they're looking for products that offer that? Because, you know, we, we, we read surveys where people say they're looking for certain things from companies and they seem to sometimes act differently. But are, do people care where the product's made when, when they're talking to you? Is that a, a big selling feature for you? And is that a, is that a sustain, I don't know if it's sustainable, but is it a differentiator for you in the market? It's definitely a differentiator because I, I think it's just so much harder to do to uh, be thoughtful about your supply chain and, and really know where your products are coming from. It, it, it requires you to be really direct with uh, the relationship with the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how our customers perceive it, I, I think uh, the black and white answer is they, they care. If, if given two products, they they would choose the one that's a little bit more thoughtful and transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, two equally but, priced uh, products. I mean, they, do you, I mean, you're going to get a price premium. I mean, you're not a, you're a specialty right. retailer, so that's there right. is a bit of a price premium in some way, shape, or form, right? That you're that you need to get and that that you deserve, right? Yeah, and I, I think the way we look at it is, um, it, it is going to be at a, a slightly at a premium, but mm-hmm. um, we will cater to the customers that are looking for something that's a little bit more unique and sure. artisanal. Um, where we probably don't want to play is uh, kind of in that same sea of sameness where uh, yeah. if they're just looking for a commodity purchase, like um, right. Lots of places to shop for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots of places to shop for that. Amazon. And, and that's somewhere where we would never uh, want to compete in anyways, and and I, I think it just kind of goes against our values of of just being methodical and thoughtful about our products. Well, you've had quite the journey, uh, so let's let's move to advice. So, what what advice would you have to fellow entrepreneurs and retailers listening, the brands? And and I'm going to frame it in a two starts and one stop. And the kind of thing is, you know, start doing these two things, and if you know, stop doing the following thing. I've learned it either doesn't work or I've seen other folks doing it and i don't think it's going to work so just in the frame of of giving advice what should people think about and start doing yeah so i think uh with a lot of uh younger brands um i i would probably suggest that they start thinking of themselves as retailers uh a lot of young brands start Mm. off as e-com these days and Mm -hmm. because it's a low barrier of entry and um uh, a lot of e-com startups uh tend to think of themselves more as digitally native or tech focused. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel kind that of a as a skew, if I could use that, that, that word, that's right. physical that's retail. Right. It's like, Hey, no, I started this digitally native and we're not about retail, but I think it may be increasingly a distinction without a difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think as you grow, you, you tend to encounter challenges that are what, a typical traditional retailer would face and mm. um, everything from growing your product assortment to looking at your business as more of an omni-channel to how to uh, get your co- customer acquisitions costs yeah. down to yeah, something that's right. a little bit more sustainable. So I feel like there's mm. a lot of D2C businesses out there that uh, are reaching that point and um, it's probably good to start looking at that earlier rather than just focused on one particular channel. Right. To have that, have that mindset going in. Okay. That's, that's your first start. Give me, give me a second. Um, so I would say thinking, uh, about your brand identity. I I know that it's saying the obvious, but it's important to have your, a real brand identity and know what your brand and product stands for. There is a lot 
of competition and sameness in any type of business. And those that have, uh, don't have a brand identity will forever compete on price. Hmm. Okay. And I guess that's, that would be similar to what should they stop doing? Don't compete on price, but in any other tips or advice? Yeah, I feel like lately this is more of an issue. Uh, a lot of D2C companies uh, in the past have had the access to very cheap capital. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say stop worrying about what investors think at this point. I think every business should look at growing their business in a sustainable manner and as organically as possible. Um, being profitable never goes out of style. And uh, <laughs> most most well, acquirers these days, well, they are looking at profitability and a path to profitability. Yeah. And consumers speak with their wallets. So any profitable business would also suggest that they have a differentiated brand from the rest of their competitors. So I, I would suggest uh, um, that it's probably a good idea to just stop <laughs> worrying about what uh, investment or investors think. Mm, right on. All right. Well, uh, what's next? I mean, it's a funny question for, I, it's a funny question sometimes when I ask fast growing and fast moving uh, retailers, because it's everything's always next. You've talked about uh, looking to open a store, but uh, you know, on your, uh, on your whiteboard at the head office, uh, what, what's next for you guys? Yeah, I, I think uh, there's always like a, a million things you want to do, but uh, you really got to prioritize what, what the team focuses on. So I think for us um, having, Testing a, a physical presence and, and a physical store is, is mm-hmm. probably the number one priority in the next three months. But I, mm-hmm. I think outside of that, we just continue to look for uh, interesting ways to expand our product line. And, and we're constantly listening to the customer and, and trying to understand what they're looking for. So over the next, I would say, three to six months, we do have a, a number of exciting product launches that we're excited to get out there. Well, I'm sure everyone will be excited to watch now they know a little bit more about the brand. Albert, thanks for joining me on the Voice of Retail podcast. It was great to to meet you and hear your perspectives. Congratulations on your success so far. And I look forward to that uh, that store opening up. And, and that'll be a, a great new adventure for you and the team. So once again, thanks for joining me on the pod. And I, I, like I said, wish you much continued success and a great rest of your summer. Great, great. Thanks for having me, Michael. It was fun. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Voice of Retail. If you haven't already, be sure and follow on your favorite podcast platform so new episodes will land automatically each week. And be sure to check out my other retail industry media properties, Remarkable Retail Podcast with Steve Dennis and the Global E-Commerce Leaders Podcast. Last but not least, if you're into barbecue, check out my YouTube barbecue show, Last Request Barbecue, with new episodes each and every week. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, consumer growth consultant, president of Emmy LeBlanc and Company Inc., Maven Media, and keynote speaker. If you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at meleblanc.co. Safe travels, everyone.